everyone, and welcome back to How the Wise One Grows. I'm really excited to introduce you to an old friend from college today, but before we get started, let's just take a moment to land here together with three deep breaths. So wherever you find yourself right now, just take a moment to take note of where your body is connected to the earth beneath you. And then think about that energy from the earth moving up through the body towards the tip of the head and then soften your shoulders down your back and notice where in the body you feel your breath and take a deep breath here inhale filling the chest fill the belly with air exhale open your mouth let it out Again, inhale, filling the body with air. Exhale, slowly let it go. One more inhale. And exhale. And you can return to that connection to the earth beneath you. And slowly open your eyes as we return to this space. Thank you all so much for landing here with us today. I'm so excited because I haven't talked to our guest, Dalen Culver, for probably like definitely since college, I feel like, aside from like an Instagram message here or there. Um, But today we get to talk to Dalen about (laughs) so many things, including eco-anxiety and forest bathing. This is like, I think one of the gifts of social media is seeing like, you know, we lived together first year of college by just like total coincidence. And then in this post-college life, it's really been neat to see. We haven't necessarily like caught up, but it's been a cool evolution of how our paths have kind of, you know, very distanced, but intertwined in our interests. So I'm really excited to kind of hear about your journey um, and what work you're doing now. Yeah, I think as much as we rag on social media, that's for me, one of the best parts about it as well is that you can stay connected to, to people who you might not have contact with every day or every week or every year, but um, your paths can then come and cross again later on. And that's happened to mm-hmm. me multiple times with people who, you know, are now some of my, my nearest and dearest, but we kind of fell apart. But then because we stayed connected in that way, we came back together. So... I agree. I I love seeing what you're up to. And um, I feel like we both wear many hats um, and have (laughs) dipped into um, some similar pools some similar interests. So I'm happy to do a bit of an overview of what I've been up to because I feel like I've bounced all over the place, to be honest. Um, (laughs) So after UVA, um, I kind of by accident, ended up getting into humanitarian work. Um, I moved to Guatemala 
um, and worked for a variety of nonprofits all across Central America for um, a few years and then came back to the U.S., worked as a domestic violence counselor in California, um, and then went to do my master's in international development at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, that was in 2019. Uh, so I've been living in Scotland for the last about four years or so. Um, mm. So my research looked at uh, integrated approaches to chronic malnutrition in rural Guatemala. Um, and after I finished my master's, I started a company <laughs> on a kind of a whim again. Um, <laughs> it's wild how that happened. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, it still seems weird to, to say that because I never thought that that was something that I, you know, was particularly inclined to do. But um, my co-founder and I, who, we met at the University of Edinburgh and we really connected over the fact that there is very little awareness around the mental health challenges facing folks who work in the humanitarian sector let alone mm -hmm. resources um, <laughs> with nonprofits who are already strapped for resources. Um, but yeah. when you work in these kinds of impact-driven professions, you are exposed to some pretty gruesome things at times. You're exposed to a lot of human suffering, a lot of non-human suffering as well, depending on whether you work in on issues of the environment or human rights issues or gender issues. You know, there's, there's such a spectrum. But it does take a very real toll on you. And the, the stronger that toll, the harder it is to do your job effectively and to not just support yourself, but support the people that you're, you're trying to, um, to help. So that became mm -hmm. really apparent to me when I was working as domestic violence counselor in California and really struggled with vicarious trauma, um, wherein you end up taking a lot on a lot of the same symptoms of PTSD. Um, but just simply by being exposed to the trauma of the people that you're working with. Um, yeah. And so that was when it really became obvious to me. And my co-founder and I started this uh, education initiative. We run workshops and events on a variety of, of topics. So compassion fatigue, um, trauma sensitivity, and of course, climate distress, which encompasses eco-anxiety. So um, that's kind of my work with Be Do. And then I, uh, that's what we're called is Be Do, short for Be Well, Do Good. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also just recently took on a role as director of operations for a nonprofit in Guatemala called Seeds for a Future, Semillas para el Futuro. And we work with rural indigenous communities building home gardens to combat malnutrition. So um, Guatemala has one of the highest rates of malnutrition in the world. Um, one of the highest, I think they were the highest until recently when Venezuela um, beat them out for highest in Latin America. Um, and a lot of that is concentrated in, in rural indigenous communities. So we teach people how to grow native plants and vegetables and fruits and herbs and how to cook with them um, to, yeah, re-inspire local knowledge in um, indigenous mm -hmm. flora and fauna and also teach people how to be self-sufficient and to not be so reliant on a very volatile food system. Yeah, it's so cool to hear, I mean, one, what impactful work you are doing and on the many spectrums through which you've been doing it, you know, and especially speaking to that 
like deep compassion fatigue that is a part of you know work nonprofit work and really most any work where you're holding space for others and holding space for healing um and it's cool I, I guess I'm curious about when did this component of tending to wellness how did that um, relationship to well-being integrate in your work that's such a good question I think it was kind of a slow burn um, it was mm-hmm. certainly something that I experienced myself and yoga and meditation and my own kind of um, well-being and spiritual practices definitely became a really valuable coping tool for me. Um, So that was part of it. But honestly, I think it's something that I've been aware of for quite a long time because my mom does this kind of work as well. Um, My mom is a... I never knew that. Yeah. So my mom is a family welfare attorney. So she is charged by the state with representing children, mostly in child abuse cases. Um, And as you can imagine, that is extremely emotionally demanding work. She Mm -hmm. sees a lot of really difficult things on a day-to-day basis. Um, And growing up, and I don't think she would be opposed to me sharing this because it's something she's very open about as well. Um, you know, it really took a toll on her ability to be there for her family because she was so preoccupied with trying to make sure her that her clients, that these kids were okay as well. Um, mm-hmm. And she's been doing it for 30 years. And I think she's found a kind of manageable balance, but she's also now looking at transitioning out of that work because not many not many people can sustain it and that's why there's such a high turnover rate in the nonprofit sector um and it's sad also that these are some of the lowest paid jobs out there um yes. social workers nonprofit workers um it's no wonder people burn out you know um the the mm-hmm. system the structure is not a supportive one and especially for people who feel deeply, which I, I definitely consider myself to be an empath and someone who feels a lot of feelings quite deeply. Um, that's that's partially sometimes why you get into this work is because you want to do something yeah. good. And then that becomes like both a blessing and a curse because you care so much that you end up burning yourself out. And so my co-founder and I were just like, there's got to be a more sustainable solution like could we all sustain this kind of work for longer and actually make more impact create more change if we have the tools to set effective boundaries to understand our own kind of emotional levels and where we're at and our internal resources and strengthening that kind of community and collective support systems like is there a better way and I don't know I don't really have an answer to be fair but (laughs) I feel like that no I think that's that caring so deeply should be a strength not a weakness you know yeah a hundred percent and I think it's a in my experience a growing and like learning as you evolve of how to care so deeply and be that fierce advocate for yourself as well you know seeing 
seeing that interconnection between yourself and other. And if you're going to take care of others and organizations and do this work, you have to apply this same advocacy and fierce compassion Mm -hmm. and care for yourself. So I I love to hear the work that you're doing. Um, As we're talking about like feeling so deeply, I think that this is – something most people are really experiencing especially the feelers out there um is eco anxiety and it's something that i think in our generation particularly in generations younger than us are, are is more and more present in the in the way we're moving through the world and experiencing the world is this in my experience it's been there's a bit of a fear and overwhelm about the constant state of the earth and the planet that we're living on. So do you mind sharing a bit about eco-anxiety and how it impacts people? Yeah, 100%. And just to validate that this is like statistically, it is something that is affecting more and more of us and the data supports that. And um, it's something that we need to really pay attention to. Um, So eco-anxiety is one manifestation of climate distress. Um, Climate distress is the kind of larger umbrella term that we use to describe a whole host of emotional and mental challenges that arise when we really have the courage to look at at what's happening to our planet, what we are Mm. doing to our planet, the harm that we're causing, and these kinds of... (laughs) thresholds that keep passing us by that and eco-anxiety as a term I think is actually a little bit limiting um, because anxiety is you know not always independent from depression fear guilt like and climate Mm. distress is not a perfect term either but I think it's more inclusive of the often really like complicated and sometimes contradictory feelings that we have when Mm -hmm. it comes to the climate crisis. Um, So anxiety specifically is rooted in fear, right? It's it's a forward-looking phenomenon. It's this uncertainty about what the future holds. And I think it's important to remember that anxiety is a rational response to the situation that we find ourselves in. It's not Mm -hmm. abnormal. It is normal. The situation is abnormal and this is an unprecedented crisis. And so um, those who experience anxiety or climate distress are not weaker or more sensitive or more predisposed to anxiety or something. We are all susceptible, but it's going to look very different for everyone. Um, the physical manifestation of anxiety, we usually think of it as like hyper arousal. So hyperventilating, difficulty sleeping, panic attacks, that sympathetic nervous system activation. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's not always the case, because like I said, a lot of these feelings are often intertwined and anxiety might be accompanied by a lot of hypo arousal, arousal and apathy. So we get pushed to the point where we just don't care anymore. You know, and I think that that like cynicism and disengagement is actually more dangerous than the hyper arousal because it just zaps all of our motivation to act and it zaps our sense of agency. It zaps our sense that we actually can do something about it. Definitely. I think it's, I really appreciate you naming 
the wider perspective of seeing it as eco distress and really I think so many people fall into that like despair and depression about what's even the point like what impact can I make what can I do um so thank you for naming that something I when you first started talking about uh bringing our awareness to the crisis at hand. Like I think so much of us move through life. Um, It's easy, at least in the West, to kind of distance yourself from it, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe we're not experiencing the very real impacts in our day-to-day when we step outside. There's definitely impacts that are there, but it's maybe not as prevalent as it is in other parts of the world. And I think this is an element where a lot of work of mindfulness can come in is like being willing to bring our awareness to the full scope and the discomfort that's there. But I think when it's not in your face, it's so tempting and on some level, like a sense of protection to not Mm -hmm. let yourself really see and take in the gravity of what's happening. But when I look at the, the teachings of the practices it's so much coming to like whether or not we choose to bring awareness to things they're still there and when we resist it or pretend it's not there it's more and more suffering it's going to get worse and worse so learning how to step into that discomfort of what already is and bringing our awareness to the present situation and then you know, letting ourselves be with the discomfort, the anxiety, the depression, the very validated and real feelings that are brought about. But then not, I think the key really comes in like not getting stuck in that. How can we let ourselves feel that and then work towards stimulated um, action and change to, you know, take the necessary change that we, every individual must take. Mm-hmm. Um But how can we do that on a day-to-day basis and how do we do that on a day-to-day basis without falling into that like burnout and compassion fatigue and overwhelm from these big emotions? I guess in my experience, have there been, or for you, have there been some tools that have helped you um, be with the reality that's present and not uh, deplete yourself as you work towards change yeah I completely resonate with everything you just said I think as you mentioned in the quote-unquote west I always put that in quotes because I studied development and I'm skeptical of like Mm -hmm. west east global north global south all those terms are always yeah euphemisms for other things but um in the west in modern cities living modern lifestyles, it is easy to live in a state of semi-denial. And that's a protective mechanism, right? Like that's, that's what our brains and hearts are doing to protect themselves from the harsh reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think the beautiful part of mindfulness practices and compassion practices is that they start to widen that window of tolerance where it's like, because the more you block out the scary stuff and the sad stuff and the grief and the fear and the 
heartbreak and the more you block that stuff out you also block out the awe and the beauty and the joy and the ecstasy and you know I think that we cannot have one without the other and that's what I love about you know whether it's a meditation or a forest bathing practice or those those practices designed to bring us into full awareness you get to experience both and I would rather experience Mm. both than neither um and I love the work of Joanna Macy on this are you familiar with her oh she's I've heard the name but I haven't studied her work she's the best and she has a book called active hope she has a bunch of books but her book on active hope is um kind of a she's a buddhist philosopher so kind of buddhist inspired argument for optimism um Mm. around around climate change specifically and yeah she has all of these amazing quotes i wish i had one pulled up right now but um just about how we cannot let the fear of the future rob us of the beauty and joy of the present um Mm. and so i've found yeah that allowing myself to feel the depth of my feelings in a supportive environment. So in some cases that might be in community with trusted friends and loved ones. Um, in some cases that might be on my own, like going on solo hikes with, for the, with the dog for me is such a Mm -hmm. cathartic exercise. Um, and just finding those those kind of salves when you're starting to feel really chafed um, and f- afraid at the edges, um, like taking the time and prioritizing the practices that allow you to kind of recoup and replenish. And a lot of the people I know who do this this kind of work, um, one of the one of my colleagues from my compassion program at Stanford is her name's Barb Easterlin. She created the first ever climate psychology certificate program for mental health professionals, and wow. she has made it her mission to. Well, she has made it a priority for her to go on at least two week long retreats per year where she is totally disconnected, totally immersed in nature because she's realized that that's what she needs in order to be able to continue doing the work that she does. And it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But when she told me that, I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, good on you. That's what you need. Yeah. hundred percent. I really love that you spoke to how we, when we can fully be with that wholeness of the present moment, it's not just that darkness that's there. There's that hope too. There's that beauty. And there are the gifts that can make it possible for us to step into that work and transformation and change. And if we can't be fully where we are, if there's extra energy and effort wasted on this resistance or denial or even beating yourself up for what you're feeling. You're inhibiting your ability not only to appreciate the joys that that is there, but you're stealing some of your energy to put in um, work towards caring for yourself and caring for the world around us, which I feel like, I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but it it seems like this is where forest bathing can really come in and and pair with this eco-distressed 
in climate distress. Do you mind talking about forest bathing? It just like the term just sounds like heaven, just like <laughs> scrubbing yourself with the leaves is what I picture, like leaf suds all over the body. No. I have to always clarify for people. I'm like, just so you know, there's no nudity involved in the forest bathing unless you want there to be. There could be if you wanted. Yeah, could be, yeah. like that's not a prerequisite. Um, but it does, it is a, it's a kind of, interesting term that I think generates a lot of (laughs) misunderstanding. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's actually, so forest bathing is the literal translation from the Japanese of Shinrin-yoku. And Shinrin-yoku is is a practice developed in post-war Japan to address the kind of public health crisis that came about in the wake of mass urbanization. So as all of these people moved into the inner city and were their their lifestyles were radically changed and they were deprived of a lot of the nature that they had been exposed to in rural areas there were there was a marked rise in all kinds of both physical and mental health challenges so um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, rising rates of depression, anxiety, psychosis, suicidal mm-hmm. ideation, and just these like general feelings of isolation and loneliness. Um, so for several decades now, Japanese researchers have been looking at the psychological and physiological benefits of exposure to nature. Um, the term Shinrin-yoku was coined in the 1980s by Yoshifumi Miyazai. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, but he designed it as, uh, as a basic framework to induce kind of physiological relaxation and boost immune system function. Um, so mm-hmm. it was developed as like a health intervention. Um, Now, in the West, forest bathing is kind of one part of the larger ecotherapy umbrella. So it's a form of immersive forest therapy, nature therapy. Um, But ecotherapy casts quite a wide net, and it represents a variety of practices and techniques, but all of them are aimed at improving health through exposure to, and more importantly, interaction with nature. Mm, I love hearing that because it's a very common thing for people to be like, you know, I feel better when I get outside. But I don't think we talk often enough about like the very evidence-based work there is that there are real reasons and physiological things that are happening within the body and the mind as to why you do feel better. So I love seeing that this, and if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, correctly, I think forest bathing came in as like more of a preventative too, Mm -hmm. or like now it's used more as preventative care. And I think that's such a beautiful thing for us to be thinking about too, is how can we make our day-to-day activities support our overall well-being and prevent, you know, getting to these points of deep health issues, both mentally and physically. Yeah, um, I feel like there's there's kind of like two schools of thought that I've observed, and I'm always an advocate for more like the middle of the road and taking the best from mm-hmm. both. Um, but it was, I think in its first iteration, forest bathing was designed as 
like a very specific health intervention intervention with very specific goals of like and, and you can see it that way if you choose to as like a way of improving productivity as a way of getting up public health metrics and i think recently there's been more focus on the kind of spiritual side of it as well and um mm-hmm. the those benefits that aren't quite quite so tangible or quite so quantifiable um and i think mm-hmm. we have to take into consider both right so um there, yeah. But there is so much fascinating science, and I think that's really important to state um, that, you know, this was all built on studies done on our exposure to phytoncides. So phytoncides are these aerosolized chemicals that are produced by all plants, but the Japanese research looks specifically at conifers. So your pines, firs, cypress trees spruces. Um, So when we breathe in these particular chemicals, our bodies respond by increasing the number of NK cells, natural killer cells, which are white blood cells that kill infected, virus infected and tumor infected cells. So it really Mm. boosts our immune system. Um, And then not to mention the kind of parasympathetic activation, that kind of slipping back into rest and digest mode. When you're outside, there's all kinds of studies on like the effect of bird song on the nervous system mm. um, and fresh air. Then, you know, we all know the benefits of fresh air. <laughs> but then you've yeah. got like the like I, I would love to see a study on the benefits of that kinship with the natural world. Like, I feel like yes. that's that's kind of what I'm interested in, like. Um, and maybe that'll be the new direction of research in the future. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that's probably the element of forest bathing that I find most a pull. I feel like in the last year, really, I mean, I've always felt a connection to nature. I feel like really in the last like year, two years, I've been feeling more of that interconnection to nature and seeing this as like I am not separate from you um humans are not separate from nature we are nature Mm -hmm. and spending really intentional time in nature to reconnect yes with the natural world but that as a means of reconnecting with yourself and then with those around you too just finding that interweaving and I think it goes um it's pretty contradictory to a lot of what the west says you know I think like or the West, (laughs) but, you know, in the States, at least it's very me focused, me centric Mm -hmm. machines versus nature and like not interconnecting and weaving the two entities. And I think that disconnection makes it a lot easier to do harm Mm -hmm. to the natural world, to not protect the natural world because you don't see it Um, as much as a living, breathing entity as you are and as a part of you too. So I I find that really, that connection really key and I think can have a lot of spark towards stimulating change if people are able to be in nature more and find that connection with it. Yeah, completely. I totally agree. I think that so much of 
the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources depends upon this idea that we are somehow superior and therefore entitled to exploit those resources, it relies on that mm-hmm. idea of separation. Because if that, that separation between humans and nature didn't exist we're too self-interested to exploit ourselves (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but we do like you said live in societies that are designed to be individualistic um and i think that's the the shinto the influence of shintoism on forest bathing you know in its roots as a japanese practice so i'm not an expert on shintoism i'll be the first to say but um I do know it's a it's an ancient Japanese religion. It's still practiced today, and it's based on these principles of harmony and purity and respect for nature, and importantly, subordination of the individual before the group. So that mm. exists kind of in opposition to the very individualistic, capitalistic societies that. Um, you and I live in, in the UK and the US. Um, In Shintoism, that kind of connectedness is a given. It's not as much of a cognitive leap as it is for us, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a really important one. And I think uh, I always say in our workshops, like the importance of getting outside, it's like, if we love it, we will save it. So the more we see the exploitation of natural resources and an exploitation of our being as much as the earth's being like you said like we we are animals like <laughs> i don't know what on yes. earth allowed us to think that we are not um we have instincts we have physical bodies we have physical senses we will grow and decay and return to the earth like you know mm-hmm. Our body is the Earth's body, and we would certainly not be as inclined to cut off our own leg <laughs> as we would be to yeah. cut down all of the trees in the rainforest. Um, so I think I, I love incorporating some of my compassion work into my forest bathing practice because one of the principles of compassion is shared common humanity and this idea that we are not separate we are not isolated we are all part of the same living breathing earth and that's that's a tough leap i think for some for some folks um yeah definitely what does a i guess more traditional forest bathing practice look like and how is it different from like going on a hike or going on a trail run and then I guess how do you integrate that compassion work into your forest bathing teachings so I get this all the time I to be clear I grew up in Colorado I have always been super outdoorsy I hike a lot and I get a lot of people who are like oh I practice forest bathing all the time I like went on a hike last week and I'm like yeah okay that was a hike not forest bathing (laughs) but still great still wonderful health Mm -hmm. benefits of getting outside and moving your body in that way don't get me wrong um Mm -hmm. but when I first experienced forest bathing it kind of rocked my world because it, it was pretty uncomfortable actually the first couple times I did it because I was so used to 
going for a hike, hiking from point A to point B, climbing the mountain, getting to the top of the mountain, coming down. It's very linear, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And forest bathing is not linear. It's not prescribed. There is no right or wrong way to do it. Um, The kind of principles that I try to weave in are go slow, think less, feel more, be still, and get lost. So Mm -hmm. it's, you can incorporate so many different exercises. Um, Usually in most forest bathing practices, there is some kind of um, threshold that you cross. So there is is a moment where you enter into the forest. And um, for me, I'll have my participants in some way greet the forest. So... We have kind of like a established meeting place. I send them out for maybe 10, 15 minutes on their own. <laughs> the only rules are, you know, don't don't worry about the time. I'm going to ring this bell when it's time for you to come back. You don't need to look at your phone. You don't need to check your watch. Um, I'll be in charge of the time and let yourself wander. Like just just greet the forest in whatever way feels most right to you. And then that'll be followed Mm -hmm. by, and then we kind of come back together and discuss, and then we do another exercise, and we come back together and discuss. And um, like I said, the exercises really vary. Um, But to give you some examples, so one of my favorite ones is what I call my tiny mantra exercise. So I Uh um, made all these tiny little cards that I ask people to pick from. Um, and they all have different words written on them. Words like mother, fertile, seed, spawn, Mm. particles, uh, wind, like just all kinds of words and whatever you choose becomes your tiny mantra. And you have, you know, 15, 20 minutes where you Go find a place to sit or preferably lay um, and really feel the weight of your body on the earth and notice the space around you with that word in mind. And it's incredible what people come back with. Like some people have Mm. such powerful experiences. Um, During my forest bathing certification training, Um, one of the women in my group, she was an older woman and didn't, didn't have any kids. Um, I think had recently been divorced and had just started a kind of new life on her own in this quite rural part of Scotland. And, um, she drew the card that said family. And I think she was already, well, she shared with us when we all came back together at the end that, you know, she had already been in the last few months trying to struggling to cope with the idea of what it means to leave a legacy when you don't have quote unquote family in the traditional sense. And she was, yeah, she, she cried and said that she had the most profound experience as she was laying in the grass, realizing that all of these beings around her were her family, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that all of the, insects flitting through the shafts of sunlight those were her family and the flowers growing in the grass next to her those were her family and some it sounds cheesy but I think 
when you can actually relax into it and get over that very deeply seated idea that um, nature is just something for us to use and enjoy and um, have fun in, but then go back to our nice comfy bed. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a really powerful practice. So that's kind of a taste of what it looks like sometimes. It's very different every time. Yeah. I mean, this definitely wasn't a, I've never been guided through a forest bathing class, but, or, um, but I was recently on a silent meditation retreat and it was, the retreat place was in the middle of tons and tons of woods and forests that was really beautifully marked. Like they kind of told you when you got there, like follow these color tags on the trees it'll take you about this long to do so like you had that reference of like okay I don't need to worry about time I don't need to worry about like getting too lost if I just follow these marks I'll be safe and land where I need so during one of our breaks I just you know walked into the woods and I had never truly spent time in nature in that way where it was like you said there was no dust I had no idea where I was going I wasn't looking at a map I was just gonna like trust that I was following the paths that were there and that I would you know finish in the time that I would work for what was happening around that so I didn't have that stressor and just to really be able to drop in the things that you or that I witnessed and paid attention to and could really absorb were just so much more profound and it just felt like being hugged by the nature around me and was a really freeing experience um and an experience of learning to like trust both nature and myself mm-hmm. in that moment which was was a really big gift um and I'm more and more trying to find ways to so often you know I'm probably one of the number one people it's like yeah if I'm going outside I want to like go on a hike or go on a trail run or like you know do you know have a that plan in mind to fit with all the other like things on the to-dos but carving out more and more of that intentional time and space, the way I'm kind of seeing it is to just hang out mm-hmm. like you would with a friend. Like, mm-hmm. how can I treat my relationship with nature the way I would treat it with a friend? Like, when I hang out with my friends, I don't hang out with them, like, to get something, like an exercise or set benefits from yeah. it either. It's like I hang out with you because I love you and I want to get to know you. And yeah, all of those benefits will come in too, but that's not the why. So that's yeah. that's kind of been my interpretation of what forest bathing can be like is really building this reciprocal relationship between yourself and the natural world. And it reminds me too a lot of the first meditation class I ever took, they explained um, a friend as someone you waste enough time with, Mm -hmm. someone you spend enough time with. And, you know, mindfulness is the space to become friends with yourself. That meditation time is when you're just hanging out with yourself, getting to know yourself. And I'm starting to see that mirrored with the natural world, you know, in forest bathing and intentional time spent outside how can I become friends with you now? How can I really get to know you? Yeah. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was just thinking how many of us live lives where our calendars are planned to the 10 minute increment. And so the Mm -hmm. notion of wasting time is like, 
the ultimate evil, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but a friend is someone, yeah, with whom time ceases to matter so much, you know, because you're like, I enjoy spending time with you so much that like, and, and we put so many conditions on our friendship with nature that we don't, we wouldn't put on friends, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I need to use this day, this one day that I have out of the month that I'm going to go on for a big hike, and I'm going to get up super early, and I'm going to get to the top of the mountain, then I'm gonna come back down before it rains, because God forbid, I'm outside when it rains. And like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and yeah, imagine if you did that to a friend, (laughs) like, okay, well, yeah, (laughs) I can only squeeze you in for 30 minutes at this particular time. And we can only go to this particular restaurant. (laughs) Um, and I'm not going to listen to everything you have to say. I'm just going to focus on like where we're going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think as I've gotten into forest bathing over the last few years, um, as I personally, I think have started to heal, I've noticed that in just a very natural, organic kind of way, my time spent outside has become much more meandering. It's less mm-hmm. about getting from point A to point B and I go to my favorite places because I want to go there and I know the way that it makes me feel. And I'm like, oh, I need that Mm -hmm. tonic for my soul right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And that doesn't, I still love hiking. I still go hiking a lot and I still love camping. And you can also weave those moments into your hiking or camping experiences. It's not like an either or. Exactly. And that's something, a question I have is how can we weave moments of this forest bathing and intentional connection into our daily lives like I had this question in mind knowing that we were going to talk and I my husband and I had to like drop off the car to get fixed somewhere so I had to go meet him or whatever and as we're you know in the parking lot I'm waiting for him and I'm like I could sit here and I could scroll on my phone and like spend probably the next like 15-20 minutes doing that while I wait where like I see this tree in the middle of the parking lot and what if I just go see the tree so I just like got out of the car and just you know it wasn't anywhere <laughs> it was in a parking lot you know it wasn't this crazy oasis that you have in your mind but I just stood in between these two trees like looking at the leaves and soaking them in and trying to be really present with them and intentional and then the time went by and it was it was such a gift. Like I felt so much more replenished moving Mm. into what I had next that day than I would have if I had just done my go-to of scrolling through the phone. Yeah, 100%. And that is kind of one example of, of a way that I would recommend incorporating forest bathing principles into your day-to-day life, um, is finding those tiny moments, um, the minute you want to reach for your phone and start scrolling, use that as a as as almost like a trigger. Like, oh, right, okay. I just opened up Instagram without even thinking about it. My thumb went straight mm-hmm. to that button somehow, <laughs> which is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been programmed that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to put my phone down for a second, look around. What is one thing that is beautiful? What is one thing that inspires awe or that inspires joy or makes me laugh or seems a little whimsical like the way that that vine is twined around that sign street sign or you know there's a there's a researcher out of Berkeley called Dr. Keltner who talks about he studies the power of awe and 
the difference between wonder and awe is wonder has this kind of grasping to it, this desire to know and to understand, whereas awe puts things in perspective because it's there is no desire to to know and understand. It's just this like stepping back and looking at the vastness of the universe like, whoa, how? Mm. And it, it's humbling in that way. Um, and so I think going for awe walks is what he calls them. Um, finding the things that inspire awe and find your special places. Like I have special places, some are closer or farther away from where I live, um, that I go back to time and time again. And you return in every season and you get to see how they change and the way that the, you know, dandelions get all crunchy and brown at the end of the season and then they kind of melt into the soil and then in the spring little shoots are so green and fresh and then they start to wilt and then and just mm-hmm. tracking things, building upon that relationship, um, making it less transactional and more reciprocal, yes. as you said, um, I think is so, so important and one way that we can just slow down a little bit in our day to day. Um, there's always, we all have five minutes that we can take to look out our window. And I'm here in New York um, and staying with a friend this weekend. We were looking at the garden right outside of her apartment window. And I was like, oh, that's a sycamore tree. And she was like, you know, I've lived here for four years and it never occurred to me to even wonder what type of tree that was. And she was like, I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you told me what type of tree it was. And she's like, now I, I'll know and now I can recognize it. And and so I think even getting having some fun with like identifying different plants um, and trees and types of clouds and like mm-hmm. that childlike wonder is so medicinal, so medicinal. So much so. Is there one bit of advice that you would leave people with on, it's like, it's a big question, so don't put too much weight on it, but like, what is something people can do to be with the wholeness that we're feeling in regards to climate distress and to tap into that awe and that Yeah, I guess that awe as we work towards something greater, something more optimistic together. There's a line from one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches that has always really stuck with me where he talks about the arc of the moral universe. And I think the more we can feel into the fact that we are part of the earth, we are an integral part of this ecosystem that is starting to buckle under the weight that we've put upon it. Um, The more we, this, this is maybe slightly a hot take, but I kind of think we need to like reframe the climate crisis as a human crisis because Yes. When I... We don't exist without it. Yeah. Well, and, and like, <laughs> I, the Earth the earth has been around for a really long time, and she is incredibly resilient, not to put 
binary pronouns on the earth, but the earth mm-hmm. is incredibly resilient and will exist far longer than any of us will. And when I think about that, when I think about the fact that, okay, I am part of the earth and the earth will survive in one way, shape or form, it mm-hmm. might just not include humans then mm-hmm. I, for some reason, that brings me a lot of comfort. Maybe that doesn't make other people feel as <laughs> much relief, but I, I'm i like, okay, the arc of the moral. I find it oddly comforting, too. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it okay, like that, but thanks. it's beautiful. <laughs> I just Dark like, and beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit dark, and it's like, you know, mm-hmm. Earth, Earth will go on. But yeah. if we as humans want to continue to exist on this incredible planet we need to do something about it you know and I think that 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 idea is both comforting and energizing for me and I think that's what we need is we need to find that balance between like tending to the pain and suffering and also Mm -hmm. motivating ourselves to continue finding solutions that are holistic and inclusive and integrated um if we want to, if we want to continue. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for taking time to share so deeply about these important things with us today and help us be with the wholeness and find that sense of awe as we move through this world. Do you mind sharing how we can stay in touch with you, how people can support you and your work? I know, you know, we have doof listeners from all over, not a ton in the UK, but I'm sure that those who can engage with you would love to. 100%. Well, thank thank you so much for having me. Honestly, these kinds of conversations are so important to have um, with each other, with our friends, with our family, with people who... Mm-hmm feel the same and different than us. And um, I love that we were able to, yeah, to go so deep. Um, So people can find me on Instagram. Uh, My Instagram is Daylen C, D-A-I-L-L-E-N-C. The work that I do with Bidu um, is available on gowithbidu.com. We are also gowithbidu on Instagram, Facebook, all of the socials. And then the organization that I work with in Guatemala is called Seeds for a Future. And you can find us at seedsforafuture.org, Seeds for a Future on all socials. Um, and do feel free to drop me drop me an email, drop me a DM um, if this is something that resonates with you. There are definitely so many resources out there that I can point you to. Um, I would say if you're invested in having these kinds of conversations, which I think it's so important that we all do, check out the Climate Psychology Alliance. Um, They offer Mm -hmm. free therapy sessions, um, three free sessions for folks struggling with climate distress and other mental health challenges around the climate crisis. And they host a variety of what are called climate cafes. So um, it's kind of informal group discussions guided by mental health professionals um, where we talk about this kind of stuff and talk about the way that people are feeling and the many paradoxes of climate psychology. And I've found it to be a really um, wonderful and supportive space. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I'll be sure all of those Instagrams and links will be in the show notes so you can stay connected with those really impactful resources. (laughs) 
thank you so much for taking the time to listen to How the Wise One Grows today. If this podcast has been impactful in your life, can you support it by following and subscribing to this podcast on your favorite streaming platform? This will make sure you never miss an episode. All you have to do is go to the show page for How the Wise One Grows and hit the plus or the follow button in the top right-hand corner. While you're there, go ahead and leave a review, preferably a five-star review, and share an episode with someone you love in your life. And if you want to support them even further, you can join the How the Wise One Grows Dream Team and become a part of a group of magical people who support this podcast every month. And you'll even get a special shout out in an upcoming episode. Until the next time, let's keep taking it one breath at a time.